Hello, welcome to the Can't Blue podcast. I'm Dan Robinson, joined here by John Townley this Monday afternoon to talk through Aston Villa's win against Crystal Palace and the wider talking points surrounding Aston Villa. John, how are you? Yeah, all good, thanks, Dan. Back to winning ways. I mean, 10, 10 wins in a row now in all competitions at home, but very good. A couple of, couple of um, away defeats at the start of the season, but three wins out of five. I think that's a solid start. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Because when we were losing against Palace, it was like a... Oh, it's, Poor starts the season, but then in the space of, or well, after John Duran came on, <laughs> scored his goal, two late goals after that. Then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, not so, uh, not so bad in the end. So yeah, doing well, thanks. I, I want to like, almost like read a, a written statement here for the start of this podcast, based off the post-match reaction we did on Saturday evening, which has been met by comment after comment saying, "This is so negative. How dare you? This is uh, such a depressing listen." After we've just win one three one, this Monday <laughs> show allows us that almost like a newspaper. We're going to correct a headline here. We're going to correct a story and offer a correction to to what, what we said originally. I'm not going to apologise for having an opinion. How I felt about the game at the time is how I feel still. We were wasteful in the first half with chances. And in the second half, we didn't really get going until the end, which was obviously amazing. And we should have kind of come onto the podcast with more, that's the words, enthusiasm, but like the buzz of a 3-1 win last minute. And we probably didn't do that. So I will apologise for maybe the lack of tone rather than the opinions said in that podcast. I'm not going to apologise for Matt Kendrick. He can, he can say what he wants. I'm speaking about myself here. I think if we'd have done it live, we'd have had comments coming through saying, all right, cheer up, lads, in like the first couple of minutes. We'd have like read the room and kind of changed our tone a little bit but because it was pre-recorded. You end up going down rabbit holes, don't you? And talking about things and, and honing in on maybe the wrong uh, tone is, is the right word, I think. So, you know, you're never going to get everyone agreeing to your opinion. And I, that's not the aim of a podcast at all, to just get people to kind of go, yeah, you were right, you were right. But to have 50, 60 comments go, you were wrong, you're an idiot. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> it but I think we probably should have come on that podcast on Saturday after having won 3 1 in the last minute, jubilant and full of, you know, exuberance about the game. We're a bit uh, focused on some of some of the negatives rather than the positives. What was your mood of the game, John, on, on Saturday night? Did you think we'd played well throughout or were you a bit like us? Not concerned, but did you see things where you thought, oh, we've not we've not played great today, but we've won? Firstly, I think the game went exactly how I thought it was going to go, at least um, in terms of how we started in the first half. I didn't think we were going to go out and beat Palace 3-0, for example. We should have been probably 2 up <laughs> by half-time. And I think that's how yeah. a lot of games will go at Villa Park this season. We're going to make chances because we're a good team and we're well set up to win our games at home as we've you know we've won our last nine Premier League games, haven't we? So we should have been in the lead and that's why I, I won't, be very critical about the performance because I think it's the fine margins that can change um, your perception of of the game that you've just seen. If Matty Cash scores his chances, if Ollie Watkins scores his chances, then Villa are comfortable leading and we're talking after the game about um, a quite straightforward victory, I suppose, but that's not how football works and um, one mistake from Pau Torres gives them, well, I don't want to blame it all on him because there was different reasons Martinez slips as well, but one poor yeah. goal to concede and all of a sudden you're playing against the Palace side who have got 11 men behind the ball or they had 11 men behind the ball for the whole game and that's not a, something you know disrespectful about Palace. They were showing us respect by doing that. You know How many times have Villa tried to get a result out of a team that are playing in Europe and you know, you, you, you're playing for a point really, aren't you? And they came close to three points and up until John Duran scored. I appreciate what what will probably be one of his best goals of his career, even though I think he's got a big career ahead of him to score that in front of the whole end. Something quite special. But again, I think it's because of how poor we were in the second half. We were chasing the game. We were, as Emery said, um, after full time, we played with our hearts more than our heads. And that can go one of two ways. It can go the way that we saw, which is good, or it can go the way which um, up until the 85th minute, we thought, you know, Palace were just going to, Take the one nil, and this is going to be um, one of those games. And our long win, our long winning run, was finally going to come to an end. That's what it felt like. <laughs> really dramatic. I don't remember a game like that actually at Villa Park, unless I'm mistaken. But I don't know about you, Dan. Is there a game that's been so dramatic? I mean, one that comes to mind would be the West Brom playoff semi final. But even then, that was slightly different because we still had to win or get past the second leg, then win the final. So I don't know. Maybe the Leicester game in the cup. 
Yeah, that's one I was going to say. Also, the Watford game. I think it was possibly Watford, yeah, the same week, right? No, those two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The last minute winner days. from Tara Mings, wasn't it? Although that's the Tom's famous Mings. There's yeah. some <laughs> in the post-match interview. His head in his hands, thinking he'd scored. Yeah, it's weird. I think you know you mentioned like it being like a blow in the last five minutes, and almost up until 85th, you're kind of expecting to be talking about or writing about this at the end of a winning run or how Palace did a job on us, and it was very frustrating and annoying, and the crowd started to get a bit antsy and. That last 10, 15 minutes or so feels so much like a blur that on Saturday evening when you rush back home and jump on a podcast, it's almost like, not that it didn't happen, but your brain is fried. It's it's really hard to describe what it's like to do a podcast straight after a game. I don't want to be like, oh, where is us? It's very difficult. But you can have an opinion and you feel that way on the on the evening of, and then people go, well, you're wrong about that. And as you kind of digest what you've seen, you go, well, yeah, I probably was wrong. And if we were doing a podcast once a week and it, the one was next week, you don't get a chance to kind of relook at things. I'm very glad and grateful that we've set up this new weekly show on a Monday where you get to kind of reflect on things a little bit deeper. I've not seen any of the game back on Saturday night when we filmed that show. I've seen everything back now. I've watched the extended highlights. I've seen the goals over and over. I've seen little moments put, plucked out on social media as well. And I've, I, I was overly critical on Saturday night and I'm happy to admit I was wrong on that. But, but again, I was just focused on that period of you know, 48-ish minutes after the goal to 85. I thought the vast majority of that was annoying and frustrate, frustrating and a bit crap and I wasn't as focused on the, the jubilation of a, a last-minute winner that I should have been. But that's enough for apologies. Let's, let's move on to, to the, uh, the wider discussion points. Let's talk about the shape a little bit, some interesting things with the shape and the, the tactical flexibility that we're seeing from Emery. Yep. Now, I'm going to attempt to do a bit of graphics on the fly here for the first time, a bit like Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher on Monday Night Football with the big TV screen. I'm going to try it on my iPad and edit it into the, the show, which I'll do in a second. Kamara dropping back into defence to cover Matty Cash, who was bombing on forward down the right-hand side and creating this kind of back three of, of Torres, Concer, Kamara. That's an interesting change and something we've not seen from, from Emery before. Do you want to just talk through your opinion of that yeah I think it worked really well actually again we, we need to kind of put it in context the Villa should have been 2-0 up by half time in my opinion and the shape that we had I think nullified Palace for the first half I mean they've got players like Eze Ayu I think Mateta is actually very handy I think it's very useful obviously he came off the bench for Ayu and they have other players like Schlupp and Edouard who are all capable of counter-attacking to great effect but I don't remember an opportunity an opportunity that they had really apart from there's maybe one ball across the box uh, from Meze that no striker got on the end of. But there was no Martinez wasn't it called into action in the first half. And it was all Villa in terms of the best chances of the game. I think it was a bit yeah. slow, potentially, in terms of our build-up. But again, that's fine if we're making chances that are... You know, granted, Ollie Watkins' best chance was because Joel Ward <laughs> misplaced a pass to um, Anderson. But Cash had two great opportunities. Diaby was, you know, marginally offside from a brilliant ball from Torres. So I think in the first half, I was happy with that performance. It's just in the second. We so were it's by... just annoying that we hadn't scored. Yeah, we were just rocked by that goal, weren't we? And it kind of came out of the blue. It was just mm. a strange one. Um, but yeah, in terms of the shape, and I think, again, I think it worked really well. I think the, the main talking point <clears throat> from when the team news came out was uh, Zaniolo starting and you wonder where is he going to quite fit in uh, it, when he came on against Burnley. He played off the right when he played against Liverpool. He came off the left, I believe. So yeah. it was like, okay, well, how is that going to work from the off? And it turned out he played almost, I wouldn't say centrally, played off the left and Diaby played off the right, but they were quite narrow uh, yeah. next to Watkins. Similar, dare I say, to how to how Gerard and Bale like to have those two number 10s next to um, a striker, but it works when you have uh, Luca Dean and Matty Cash who are basically playing as wingers because you have the protection of Kamara Torres and uh, Esri Concer as well as a back three. So, I think it brought the best out of um, our players. Luca Dean, I think, and Matty Cash, I thought, played very well. And those are two players who want the license to, you know, be involved in attacks. They're two different players in terms of Luca Dean won't go to the byline and cut balls back like Cash will try to. But they've both got uh, qualities that can be obviously utilised from um, from the flanks. And just on Luca Dean, I think he's actually made a very impressive start to the season. I yeah. know that you know three assists um, in the Hibernian game, but two assists in crucial moments as well against Burnley. That was to win the game where it could have gone either way. An assist for John Duran, and you could argue, well, do you even kind of count that because Duran's 
kind of scored a worldie, <laughs> like you credit mm. assists uh, for those goals. But um, he's had the most inceptions, most key passes, most aerial duels won as well, Luca Dean, this season for Villa. From a left-back position, that's um, you know that's no mean feat. And he was included in Lekeep's team of the week for all French players as well, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, credit to him. And I thought Cash, yeah, he just gives you that energy. And Emery mentioned before, didn't he, um, about he's been studying Cash uh, when he was at mm. Forest. He played as a winger because that's a player who had only played right back, I think, for one season before he joined Villa. So it's a big yeah. step up, you know, in itself to go from the Championship to the Premier League, let alone to do it uh, in a position that you're not particularly, you know, he, has, he didn't play, play five years. No, yeah. exactly. Um so yeah, he's utilising uh, utilising Cash Cash's uh, athleticism. I think that's his best trait, isn't it? It's to get forward, link play, and put balls in the box. So um, yeah, it worked really well. Again, Diaby's Daniolo, you want them with Watkins. You don't want them hanging out wide because that's they're not going to be particularly I don't know dangerous in those situations. The defenders don't want Diaby and Zaniolo coming inside and linking, and that's where we look most threatening. Uh, I suppose you'd say. I'm going to attempt to channel my inner Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher with my big screen, aka iPad, with a, a graphic that I've got, and this will obviously be displayed on screen for the YouTube audience. We'll talk through it for those that are only listening on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. And it's also a very rudimentary thing to kind of display the transitional element of football through a couple of images because you know the game is fluid, isn't it? Having Zaniolo as part of front three didn't play as a left winger so that the whole game is dropping deep he's part of a midfield three in, in some instances as well and dropping in to, to collect the ball from deep and, and help kind of run with the ball as well and we'll talk about Zaniolo's debut or his first start at least in a second in more detail so the graphics on screen now that we're talking through is a it's a 4-4-2 isn't it you've got Dean and Cash as your fullbacks Torres and Conte at centre half Louise and Kamara as a two in midfield with McGinn off the right Zaniolo off the left and Watkins and Diabu that's kind of how you would expect Villa to, to start Watkins is kind of your main man, your main centre forward, and he'll come up later in the show as well in more detail. Zaniolo is kind of that secondary number 10 that you've mentioned, John, and DRB kind of supporting him as this kind of front three. That gives Dean space to move up on the left-hand side a little bit, Cash the same on the right-hand side, and he's now uh, overlapping him again, which will move him in a second. Uh, Kamara is the one that we've spoken about who then drops into the kind of right-back position. We'll move those players, Torres, Concert, and Kamara, across a little bit and they're kind of like the back three then aren't they that leaves a massive space in midfield for McGinn to drop in alongside Douglas Louise as a two and Cash and Dean as we mentioned pushing further forward down on the flanks uh, and that leaves you with this kind of 3-4-3 three, three, uh, position that Villa played in but as we mentioned you know Zaniolo drops in to midfield at times Cash is bombing on far, much farther forward down that right hand side as well so like I say it's a very rudimentary thing to have a 4-4-2 and a 3-4-3 and it's not as simple as that but that looks an interesting side on paper with Kamara dropping in on that on that kind of right back side as well what did you make of Zaniolo's first start for us we didn't speak about him at all on the, the Saturday post-match reaction on purpose almost because I knew this show was coming up and we'd have a bit more room to speak about him you impressed by him yeah I was uh, again I think it's difficult for a player like him to come into a team that has been settled at least um, you know in the attacking areas obviously we've just signed Diaby but those players that he's playing with in terms of like midfield players and players he's going to be linking with, that's always going to take a little bit of time uh, to gel. And he's playing in a, a, a position that he hadn't played in before, at least for Villa. Again, when he came on against Liverpool, it was different because we're not going to dominate possession in the final third like we did against um, Palace. But he made the most chances in the game, didn't he? I think three chances. He had a moment yeah. where he nutmegged a uh, Palace player and I think he pulled it across the box, but obviously we didn't score from it. I think was that Cash's chance, I think. Yeah, he just fluffed it, didn't he? So he should have had an assist, to be fair. And yeah, he linked well with Luca Dean, I thought, because again, he needs that. He needs players to link with the... I don't think Zaniolo is a player that's going to kind of drag a team up the pitch like uh, Jack Grealish would or something like that. Those players that we've had previously, like a Ramsey, although he's capable of moving with the ball, of course he is. I think he prefers to be linking and being um, more intricate with his teammates. So Little flicks and stuff. Yeah, the only thing I was going to mention about that, I thought sometimes maybe he tried a bit too hard to... Mm. Um, impressed maybe uh, you could kind of see what was going through his head like we all know that Dean was making like an overlap and the ball was coming in and you thought you know don't back heel it just flick it around the corner um, <laughs> you know so you know the ball's going to go into his stride and we're going to be away but he kind of thought oh actually no I'll just flick it instead with his pink boots I suppose it's a flair player uh, and you don't want to take that away from players he's clearly confident as well which is good so yeah I thought it was a good debut and um, what I would say is that if he, I think he went a bit quieter in the second half as most of our players did, to be fair. But yeah. it's all right because you can bring on a player to change the game like a Duran 
like Bailey, or, who I thought played well, uh, mm-hmm. Tielemans as well. So it's all about having options. And I think Zaniola is certainly a player that, at least as a type of player, that, you know, that, that we don't have basically. Uh, otherwise, he's something different. And that's what Emery wants. He wants different profiles across his squad. So, yeah. I think it was an impressive um, performance. I think it suited him playing just inside as well. As I say, Luca yeah. Dean. Again, if he, if you ask him to play out wide, I think you're limiting everything that you can do, which is um, kind of neat touches around the box and creating chances. It's interesting you mentioned like not kind of like dragging us up the pitch. There was one like dribble he had that he, he did go on and run powerfully with the ball, and I thought yeah. we've missed that. You know, Jack Ramsey is that role, isn't he, down that side that he'll, he'll progress up the pitch by dribbling with it. Uh, so it's interesting that he has got that in his locker, but you, know, you mentioned those like fancy flicks and stuff, and you kind of casting your mind back to Douglas Louise against Bournemouth in our first season back, like flicking it back yeah. to like stepping over the ball and like leading to an opposition goal. Like we don't want anything from that from from Nicolo Zaniolo, but it gets you off your seat, doesn't it, to have somebody that's a bit of a maverick in that that sense, and you can just see him kind of playing a neat one too with Luca Dean or whatever, and blasting one in from twenty five yards, and kind of like yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, uh, so, so you don't want to put that in a locker. Yeah, and you don't want to take it away from them because, as I mentioned, he's, he's not making a player when it could have been the easier thing to go back and you know recycle the ball, but yeah. he's got past them and we should have scored. So it's uh, those players, yeah. you know, they might, I don't want to say frustrate you because he didn't frustrate me in the game, but if he was to frustrate you, you, you kind of have to just get over it because it will produce a piece of magic, um, as Stephen Jones said. I want to talk about Matty Cash very quickly, and I've not looked into this as much as I would like to, so I don't want to come across as either ill-informed or that I'm playing wrong and I'll be told by the comments about it. Have you heard of the phrase box crusher? <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah. Okay, can you explain it to people who maybe are not aware with that phrase? Well, <laughs> it must be quite um, simple to work out. It's basically a play that's going to get into the box uh, at, different, at different points in the game and try and disrupt things rather than kind of just lingering around. He'll, he'll, you know, it's, it's about being direct and, yeah, Cash does that very well because, as I say, it's quite athletic and when he gets into the box, it's hard to... I say hard to stop, but again, it's something the defenders don't want to deal with because it's another player overlapping, or it's a player that's coming in with, um, yeah, with some with some pace to to yeah, cause problems. Yeah, he's been arriving into the box, hasn't he, a lot more this season so far. I've found yeah. I've not again, I've not got any stats in front of me. And I wish I had about how many times he's got into the box, how many touches in the box he's had. And I imagine it's an improvement this year on last. And that's something that's been levelled at Cash previously about his end product and maybe not going forward as best as he could do, or not making the right decision when he does get into those champ, uh, positions. And I think we said on the show on Saturday that he probably should have five or six goals already this season with some of the chances he's had. You mentioned that one that Zaniolo put across to him. He had a header as well, which he was in acres of space that he should definitely do better with. point I'm trying to make here, and I'm probably not making it very well, do you think that Cash's box-crushing ability to get into the box late and, and be at the back post and be a nuisance, basically, that's coming down the right-hand side for us this season, whereas last year, that was on the left with Jacob Ramsey. And because he's not been available to us, do you think we've maybe seen a switch to the right-hand side that now Cash is that player that causes that disruption down the right-hand side rather than Ramsey on the left? I think it's certainly something that we've missed because, as you say, we've had no Ramsey. Moreno as well has been missing, not so much a box crasher, but someone who will get down to the uh, to the byline and put crosses in like Cash has been trying to do and getting in, get in the final third. But I think it's just a, because Emery is now playing that three at the back. We've seen Cash play as a uh, centre-back as well in that three against like Newcastle, I think it was which didn't really work because Cash's um, strengths are going forward. He is a winger, really, that's capable of defending, if you want to kind of put it in a simple way. So I think it's just because we're playing that three at the back and we know that Conte can play on that right-hand side or as he uh, did against Palace, Emery, he put Kamara on that right, which actually I thought worked well. Kamara came through as a centre-back, didn't he, at Marseille, and he was kind of of transitioned into a holding midfielder. Uh, over there and is capable of doing those roles very well so I, I think anything to get cash further forward um that that's where he wants to be playing and that's where i think he can uh affect the game more so i think he needs to polish up a little bit in terms of his final product yeah because yeah. Like, for the ability he has in terms of getting into those areas which is by the way something that needs to be credited because a lot of players you know how, how often do you see um i don't know <laughs> The right back that I'm thinking of, and I don't know why, it's Matt Doherty. He always, when he played for Wolves, got in those areas and he'd score like nearly double figures in a season. And I'm not saying that Matt Cash needs to idolise Matt Doherty, but it's that sort of um, effect that he can have on the game because he's allowed that licence to yeah, yeah. to get forward. And he's, he has that sort of awareness um, of when to hurt an opposition in, in those areas, which is good, again, because he played as a winger, as a... Uh, 
you know, at a younger age and Emery's been studying that. So, yeah, certainly I'd say a bit of a renaissance for him this season so far because he's been allowed to do what he wants to do and what I think he'll probably do best for Villa moving forward as well. I expect him to get five, six, seven plus goals this season for sure. Yeah, as you say, he probably least. could have had three or four already. He scored against Brentford, didn't he, in pre-season two, playing in a similar similar way. Yeah. He scored against Leeds, which was a similar goal to the one against Brentford um, last season or the season before now. Let's adjust our focus then to Pau Torres. Now I'm going to read you a couple of stats in a second and I've integrated some comments into this from either YouTube or Twitter or X. You can follow us on all those different platforms. The links to those are in the description down below. The things that are questions or comments, I haven't got people's names, unfortunately, because I've, I've manually typed them in instead of uh, copied and pasted them. So apologies that these aren't named, uh, credited comments. This first one on Pau Torres. Pau Torres on toast for the Palace goal. It's becoming a worry how his lack of physicality is leading to goals conceded. Now, this is something we've spoken about for a couple of weeks now, that defensively he needs to fix up a little bit. Physically, for a, a big guy, you'd expect him to be a little bit stronger than he is in some instances, but I, I'm going to just put that down to it being a new league and it taking a bit of time to adjust the, the physicality and the temper of it. I think he, he will get better defensively. Going forward, though, is also something we've talked about and some stats from the Palace game. Most passes completed, 117. And Pau Torres had 132 touches of the football against Palace on Saturday, the most of any Villa player in a Premier League game this season. Also, the most touches in a Premier League game for all of last season as well, which I thought was interesting. As we know, he's on the ball a lot. His passes are very good. He'll find players. He set up the well, say he set up the goal for Diaby. He would have set up the goal if Diaby was not offside. Uh, he's on the ball. He's dictating how we play from the back, but physically and defensively, he's going to be a bit of a concern for a little while to come. What do you make of him? Yeah, firstly, the positives, um, to, well, to be fair, I think it's like two extremes. We know how yeah. good he is on the ball. Like, seriously, those stats you've read out there, Dan, and 25 pass into the final third in the Palace game is, trust me, that's a lot. Like, Kamara had 10, and that is usually like, oh, that's good for a centre-back. He's done more than double. 94% passing accuracy as well against Palace. Most of them are going to be progressive going into the final third, or, you know, not most of them, but a fair amount. However, and I don't want to base it on negatives, but, this is only something that is glaringly obvious. He has been at fault in every game by the Everton uh, win because we kept a clean sheet for at least one goal. And, and that is a big problem. Like I can't sing his praises high enough in terms of what he gives us on the ball. However, if you're conceding a goal with a game pretty much, again, apart from it, apart from Everton, um, that's down to his, you know, a decision is made, that, that that's an issue and moving forward, it has to be improved and quickly. And I understand mm. the comments that people are saying about he needs to improve his physicality and things like that, but I'm not too sure that's actually the issue. I think it's more just decision-making and reading certain moments. Like, yeah, Torres hits the gym over the next few weeks. He's not going to be as strong as Mateta and he's still going to be rolled if he tries to engage like he did. And I think mm. when he's back, I believe the striker's had it had his back to goal when it, Torres has tried to win the ball. He fails it in a in a tackle. At that moment, back off then, you know, don't try and win it and win it again. And then, you know, it, it, it's a goal after that because all he's got to do is square it across the um, across the box. In the Burnley game, Foster, is it Forster or Foster? Lyle Foster, I think, the Burnley striker. Yeah. That was too easy. How he, um, I think he shimmied and then uh, scored past Robin Olsen. In the Liverpool game, it was a case of overplaying and he gave away the corner. And in the Newcastle game, um, I think he got sucked in, didn't he? And Newcastle were, were away. And again, I'm not trying to be overly negative, but if you're for where we want to get to, and Emery knows it as well because he's already spoken about it. He spoke about it in the first weeks of of the season. He said that Torres has to improve his one on one defending, and this is something that Torres will know better than anyone. Of course, yeah. probably feel embarrassed that he's been kind of, um, you know, sure. kind of. Yeah, I suppose so. And he's that good of a player. It's it's difficult because he's so good on the ball, but defensively he is making mistakes and they are costing Villa and that has to be improved quickly because we can't be in the situation where in two months' time, Torres is still you know at fault for a few goals and it needs to be um, cut out completely. Like when was you know the last time that you know top centre-backs at Man City, Arsenal and those clubs made as many mistakes in, in a season that led to those goals. And I'm not saying we have to aspire to those standards, but I think Torres can play for those teams in terms of what he gives on the ball. Mm. Um, he's one of the best uh, ball progressors as a centre-half in Europe, and that's a fact, in the Premier League, wherever not many players can do it as well as he can, and his left-footed, which is a massive plus. However, going the other way, 
he is vulnerable and I don't doubt that he'll be able to improve it because Emery wouldn't have bought him if he didn't think that he would be able to. But it is a problem and I don't think that's been negative to suggest. It's far too simple for Mateta to turn him like that for, for the Burnley player to do so as well. Yeah, I think the key thing you've you just mentioned there, and that's, this is something we said in, in the summer window as well, is that if he was as good as we keep saying he is, he would be at an Arsenal or a Man City. Because going forward, like you just said, the things he does and the balls he plays is key to anyone who wants to play out from the back. Having Pau is what, what did you say? It was 25 passes into the final third and most passes completed and things like that. If you stick him in Arsenal or Spurs or whoever who play a similar style of uh, football, he does very well. However, the reason he's not gone to the one of those sides is because of his defensive frailties that he, is, he can be got at, he can be vulnerable in certain instances. Now, what I will say is Villa aren't in the Champions League yet, although they have aspirations to get there. So we can afford to kind of mould Pau Torres a little bit in the Premier League, whereas a, a Newcastle Spurs, it's not Spurs, it's not even in Europe, but a side that should already be up there, they need the player to be ready now, whereas Villa have time a little bit to kind of mould that. And there's going to be no better coach than in Emery to do that for what, he, for what he is as a football coach, but also because he's worked with Torres before. I think that is a key relationship that will hopefully prove benefit to Villa in the long run. But I, I do get the frustrations that you could look at the X amount of goals that Villa have conceded so far and think, well, Pau Torres has been involved in 50% of those and that isn't great. But yeah. going forward, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I can already picture the comments now of maybe people, and I don't want to generalise here, people of an older generation thinking, when you talk about goalkeepers being good with their feet, the, the refute <laughs> that is well the goalkeeper save shots be good with your yeah. hands don't be good with your feet so to have a centre half we talked about as well he's good going forward defend first like, let's forget about progressive passes and passes into the final third don't lose your man don't be rolled by, by a Burnley centre forward like, you've got to be stronger and better than that You know, be a good defender before you're a good ball player but the way the modern game is it needs to be good at both <laughs> Kind of hit the nail on, on the head there, Dan. The reason why he hasn't got a Champions League club, as we all know, is because he's defensively he's a bit shaky at the moment. And those clubs, they can't afford that. They need someone to come in who's ready-made right now. And as you say, Emery's the best man to um, to improve his defensive attributes. And obviously the coaches that are at Bodymore uh, in Emery's team as well. But they're just facts at the moment. He's incredibly good with the ball and that won't change. You know, who knows? It might even improve. But defensively, he is vulnerable at the moment and that has to improve quickly because Villa will be caught out again and again if he doesn't make improvements because if you do a basic analysis of Aston Villa in the first five games and you're the opposition, the thing you're going to do is put a player on Pau Torres because defensively he's been, as you say, caught out so far. So um, yeah, hopefully it improves and I don't doubt it will because he's a top player and there was a period where um, he went out on loan to Malaga when he was playing for Villarreal because, I mean, he didn't start his career as a um, as a centre-back. I think he was a, as a midfielder, I believe. And they put him out to Malaga to kind of get used to sort of men's football, if you will, because they were in the second Spanish division then. And he, he came back and he was a much improved player as a result. And that's when he got his uh, chance to play in the first team. And then Emery came along, took his game to another level again. But that's La Liga and this is the Premier League. And these are where this is where all the best players are. And yeah, he'll, um, he'll know it and you know, we're not digging in. We don't want to dig him out. These, but these are just the things you see on the pitch, and these are the things that cost him Villa. And as I say, hopefully in in the coming weeks, it, if we see less of it, then all of a sudden we have, I think, one of I don't want to say one of the best centre backs in the division. But in terms of what you want in that specific moment from a left sided centre back playing in three, I think there's very few centre backs I'd rather have than Bal Torres if his defensive. Um, frailties are kind of ironed out. There's an exchange I saw with a Villa fan and James Rushton, and I only know this because it was James's Twitter account talking about Pau Torres and whoever the Villa fan was, and apologies, I can't again uh, give you credit, said moaning about Pau Torres is like moaning about buying a red jumper and complaining that it isn't blue. Well, you bought a red <laughs> jumper, you knew what you were getting. Like you, it's a two very yeah. different things. And I think James replied something like, oh, my Ferrari doesn't work off-road. It's, like, well, it's, it's two very different things, isn't it? So you know what you're buying with Pau Torres. It's a progressive centre-half who will play balls into the final third. He's doing that. It's the defensive side that it will need work. And like we said, I think that will be ironed out as the season goes by. And, yeah, and it needs to um, be ironed out quickly. And that's the thing. We, we all know what Pau Torres is. However, you, you can't ignore that we are concealing goals because of him. So yeah. I'm just saying in a couple of weeks, I hope that that will be ironed out. And I'm sure it will because they're... Some of it's quite basic. Like again, Mateta's there. Don't don't you don't need to be rash. You know he's going to turn you, and he wants to turn you. And oh, that's well, isn't it? Yeah, and that's something that in the next game, if um, Nicholas Jackson does it against Chelsea, Torres will think, well, actually, I'll stand off. You know, I'll ask for protection or cover. So, 
yeah, um, their their worries. Sorry, it's not a worry that I have going further into the season. It's something that just right here and now is um, being obvious to everyone, including Emery, including Torres. The next topic I wanted to talk about, really, I've entitled in my notes as Tielemans' criticism. Now, again, this is harking back to what I started the podcast with, that maybe I was a little bit overcritical of your Tielemans. There was a comment I will read out from, from YouTube, and this is one of many. Sorry, but your comments regarding Tielemans are unreasonable, as he settled the penalty and put a great ball through for Diaby for the third goal. He should play ahead of Kamara, in my opinion, as he's much, well, he's much more well-rounded and more creative. Unfair criticism, in my opinion, which would not have been said if he hadn't recently expressed a will to play. Now, that last line there is key for me because that is my probably unconscious bias of the situation coming through that because, and again, we've spoken about it on the podcast and it's been on social media, that he went away to international duty, was asked about why aren't you playing and said, I'm unhappy, blah, 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 blah. So when he comes back and gets a chance for Villa, in my head, I'm thinking, you've got to do something now. Now, I think, I, again, I've been sucked into that kind of 45 to 80 minute period where I didn't think anyone was was that great. But there's a couple of instances for Tielemans, and I'm reading off tiny things here, like what I saw at the game in a tiny moment of like body language, and I'm going to come across as a massive idiot here. There's a moment where Tielemans just didn't kind of close down a man or something near the, the touchline, and kind of like he looked frustrated with the situation. Having said that, I should have put that to one side and recognised that the final 10, 15, 20 minutes of the game when Villa were starting to click into gear again, obviously score the first goal and go on to win. Tielemans is crucial to that. Because he plays the ball for the, to, to win the penalty, and he puts Diaby down on that on that left hand side for Bailey's goal in, in the in the final seconds of the game as well. What did you make of Tielemans? I, I think my my overall impression of him was I, I wanted him to do more than he did when he first came on. But yeah, like I said, he he, he does deserve credit for for his impact in the in the final minutes. Yeah, I, I think he did well actually. I understand what you're you know what you're saying, Dan, but I just I don't think he's a player that's going to come on and create you know chances and, and things like that, especially when he's playing in a in a midfield too, and you've got, you know, how many attacks did we have on the pitch? Was it Duran, Watkins, Diaby, other players? We had fullbacks bombing on it, and Tielemans is going to have to basically just collect the ball and move it on, and and he did that, as you say, for, for the penalty, you know, one key moment, and he gets it right, and then mm. the Diaby goal as well. Um, you know, it was, it was a good ball, but it was a kind of an obvious ball, I suppose, but the, the Watkins pass was the key one, and there's players who would probably look up and think, oh, do I play that because it's the 98th minute or 96th minute or whatever it was, uh, and I don't want to give the ball away and then get booed by the crowd, but Tillemans thought, nope, I'll just take it and roll it into yeah, Watkins. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's in those moments that Tillemans proves himself as a top player, and, and that's the difference, ultimately, and fair play to Emery. It's his subs that changed the game, barely scored his goal, I mean, he couldn't miss, but I think he made a good impact. Uh, Taylorman yeah. makes an assist and a pre-assist, I suppose you'd call it. And there's another one. Oh, of course, Duran. Duran, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that um, <laughs> obviously scoring like goal of the season. So yeah, I, I was I was happy with Taylorman. He's that player that isn't going to run around at high intensity. as a player though that's going to get on the ball and and make things tick. And that isn't something that you'd necessarily think that oh, coming off the bench is going to change a game. But in the moment that we saw with Watkins, it has. So, yeah, um, played well. I expect him to play some sort of, some, or at least a large part of the game against Warsaw as well on Thursday because it'll, then you got to start. Chelsea, I think. I'd have thought so. But like the comment mentioned then with Kamara, they're, they're two completely different players though. And I just think going away, do you need, um, what do you need, Kamara or Telemans? And I want Kamara in my team almost every game to be that protection. But then when do you think Kamara's played, been that good so far? Just as again, as a bit of a you know, two sides of the argument, I don't think Kamara has been great so far this season. I, I think he did well in what he was asked to do against Crystal Palace, dropping into a, a different position. I think he's he's done okay. He wasn't being subbed off though. Kamara is a player that we don't have basically. Otherwise, um, I said that about someone else earlier, Zaniola. But Kamara, he I don't know. He isn't like Louise wins the ball back a lot. I think he won the ball back actually uh, the most or fifteen times or something. Yeah, the most in a game this season or something. I can't quite remember. But Kamara's the protection. He's the foil for the back for the back line. He gets around. He nips and he wins the ball like a lot and and in key points as well. Uh, Tielemans won't do that. They're different players. And I just think if you don't have Kamara, well then you you don't have a player who's going to run around, rat around, win the ball because we don't have that. We have Dendonk who can do it to a different level. But I can't see Dendonk kind of sticking around long term anyway. So I kind of struggle to not have Kamara in my team, even if he isn't playing particularly well, because he's just, I don't know, it's like taking Watkins out of your team. It's like, well, yeah, he's not scoring loads, but he's your striker. And 
Kamara might only be playing 10 out of 10 every week at the moment, but he is our, you know, our kind of anchor, I suppose you could say. And I think he's playing fine, actually. I just don't, I think there's other players in the team doing as well as they are. I don't think you can kind of look at Kamara as we probably did what we did when Gerard was here and said, oh, he's really good and he's playing so well because no one was apart from him, really. Got a couple of individuals left I want to talk about. That's John Duran and Ollie Watkins. Now, there's probably a negative and a positive there. And let's get the negative out of the way because the Ollie Watkins discussion informs what we what we'll end up saying about John Duran. So, I'm going to read you a couple of comments about Ollie Watkins because I feel like we've probably spoken about him every week on the Monday show so far. So, I'm a little bit fed up about speaking about him to be honest, and I feel like I'm just going to be repeating myself for people who have listened to every podcast this season. I'm just saying the same things about Ollie Watkins because the situation has not yet changed. So there's a couple of comments here for him and I'm just going to let you speak about him. Although you probably feel the same way that you'll end up saying the same things that you always say. <laughs> Surely after that performance by Watkins, there's no argument as to the need for a striker. The guy just hasn't got what it takes to be a force in the Premier League. I love Watkins and his work rate is second to none, but he will cost us points if he doesn't start scoring regularly. And finally, do you think Watkins not signing a contract yet has made fans see him in a different light? I get the vibe that it has. There's three probably different talking points there in those in those comments. So take that how you will, and I'll tell you what I think afterwards. Firstly, I think to say he's not forcing the Premier League is extremely harsh. <laughs> he's probably Very one of only like two players who have got double figures over the last three years as strikers. And yes, he's missed a big opportunity in that first half, and he has to score. He has to. Watkins knows he has to. But then. You know, fine margins, he nearly puts one in the top corner. Um, and we would have kind of given that not the same treatment as Duran's goal because there's so much, you know, extra with that. But, you know, what a goal that would have been. And, and again, fine margins. But I don't know how to explain it, but like we've scored, what, 11 goals in five games, I think. I think if what I think if we hadn't scored those goals, then I'd be kind of more concerned. If that makes yeah, sense. But Watkins is, is still, you know, Modern football, your striker doesn't have to score two goals a game. And I know he hasn't scored in a long time, but he's still part of a forward line that are getting goals. Watkins has kind of won us that game. In, and, I, and I don't want fans to say, oh, stop sticking up for him or whatever. But if he doesn't make that run, take a good touch, and then get fouled by the Palace defender, then we draw the game. I just think it's a bit overcritical to blame. You know, we all say uh, Torres, oh, he's amazing at passing, and oh, but he's conceded. Oh, sorry, I can see it, but he's he's um he's been at fault for five goals. But it doesn't matter, you know, he's so good at passing. But then with Watkins, it's a case of oh, he hasn't scored, so the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. And it's like well, you can't have it both ways. You have to have balance yeah. with it. So yes, Watkins has to be scoring more goals, and he will want to be scoring more goals. This is probably one of the I don't want to say the lowest points of his career. Of course, it isn't, but he'll be hurting from not scoring this. You know, the amount of goals. If he scores two against Warsaw. Or three, even four goals against Warsaw, but then he doesn't score against Chelsea. We then say, oh, he's only scored one in 13 games against in against Premier League teams now. So th- there's always going to be a negative with it's, when it's Watkins. And I think it's just because it's a striker and we're a good team. And when you're a striker and a good team, it's kind of like, oh, but you have to be scoring a goal a game or something. Um, when that just isn't the case. Watkins could score six goals this season and we could probably still get in Europe. And I know that sounds a bit crazy, but we have the RB, we have Ramsey, we have other players. We scored three goals against Palace. We score four goals against Everton. We score, uh, obviously, only one against Newcastle, but we should be scoring more against Newcastle. We should be scoring more against Liverpool. Yes, we want them to score more, but it doesn't make us... It's not massively impacting the team. And But but he is impacting the team in a good way, in the same way. So it's, I don't know, it's um it's a very, it's a very obvious thing for me. He wants to score more. We want him to score more. It hasn't, hasn't quite happened yet, but until Emery says otherwise, he's going to be the number nine and we're yeah. still playing well, even if this is the worst he's been playing in front of goal or whatever. Um, Emery said after the game that he's strong in his mind. He has a good mentality. He's amazing at the training ground and every day he's going there to learn and practice. Uh, he says he didn't score in the Premier League, but he scored three against Caber- against Hibernian. He's had big opportunities, which the goalkeeper saved at Burnley and obviously chances against uh, Palace as well. And then he says he works every day and I like him. He scores goals because he's natural and strikers will score and then he also says that we're going to continue to help him and I'm very happy with him so that's Emery on Watkins to kind of you know he's not going to say too much otherwise than that is he but he has faith in him and who knows maybe Durant scoring that goal might kind of kick him um, kick him at the backside as well and it will start to put more uh, more goals away I'd be more concerned if he wasn't in the positions as well by the way and, well this is what the conversation we had last week about it, yeah. you know, his XG being good and people kind of refuting that as well I don't care whether he was expected to score or wanted to actually score but if his XG was 0.1 and he wasn't in the right positions or like you say when that ball from Tielemans comes through if he miscontrols it and the ball rolls out for a goal kick that's a problem 
The fact that he's yes. still yeah, 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 involved yeah, yeah. in the right areas, even if he's not the one putting it in the back of the net, while Villa are scoring goals and winning games, it doesn't doesn't really matter in the same instance that Pau Torres making a mistake doesn't really matter if Villa go and score three goals and win the game. If we yeah, like, trust if Villa me, couldn't if... score, the Pau Torres thing is way bigger. If Villa yeah. don't score, the Watkins missing chances is way bigger. That he should have scored that one. The one that he had loads of time at, uh, he runs yeah. onto the ball, he should be scoring it. But the one that you mentioned where it comes off Sam Johnson's head and goes for a corner. If that comes off Sam Johnson's head, as it probably would if it was the other way around from Martinez and Arsenal last season, and it bounces into the net, Watkins is off the mark, everyone's happy, and we're not even talking about it. So for me, my opinion of it is, I'm desperate for him to score because I'm a Villa fan, and I want him to do well and score goals and to contribute and for us to win games. But to change the the narrative about it, I don't want to be talking about how Watkins hasn't scored for another week. He just needs to break that and get that one. And it's a confidence thing, and I think once he gets that one, and hopefully it's Chelsea this weekend and, and, and Warsaw in the, in the in the Conference League as well. Once he gets that one in the league, I think he'll go on to score. I'm not saying he'll go on to score every single game, but he'll, he'll have a, a period where he scores most weeks for a period. And then he'll have a period where he doesn't score for a few weeks. And I think that's yeah. that's Ollie Watkins. Yeah, and at the end of the season, when all's said and done, he'll have, we'll probably have double figures again. And we're talking about, oh, it's only Ollie Watkins and, and ex-player and whatever that have only scored double figures in the last three game, uh, last three seasons, four seasons or whatever. And we, then we're all saying, oh, we need to sign a new contract. And I just, I just think it's jarring talking about him after every week, especially when we've won and he's still contributed. He doesn't have to score every game for that to be you know, a positive performance or not. And it just winds me up, especially because we've had a good start to the season. I don't think there's any need to be particularly negative. We all know Ollie Watkins wants to score goals. It'll happen. And when it does, we won't talk about it anymore. Mm. So, yeah. Just on those comments, there's a couple of things from each one I want to mention very quickly. The fact that he's not a force in the Premier League, I, I cannot get on board with. He, he's he's on rec- he's on route to becoming our Premier League top scorer if he stays with us and, and contributes in the way that we expect him to. So, like you said, he scored double figures in back-to-back seasons. What was it, 14 or 15 last year? Like That's a good Premier League striker. Like, I saw another comment I didn't include in this because I just didn't agree with it, saying that he's a championship-level striker, which... He's not. Like he's, oh, it's not that bad, guys. Like we need to remember that he can score goals. And you just like, it, yeah, that's January been... to April or whatever it was last year when he scored nine and eleven. We're all talking about him being super lethal and yeah. playing for England and whatnot. So you, you've got to look at the whole game, like rewatch the game and see what he does. Like you, you may as well give him a goal for the for the penalty he wins because that, <laughs> that wins the game. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm being overprotective. I don't know him, but. Come on. If Watkins scores every chance he gets, like Haaland misses so many chances, it's just true. He just he scores loads because yeah, he's the best driver in the world. But he misses too. loads as well. I'm not comparing the two. But Watkins will miss chances and he'll also score them over the course of a season. That's yeah. it. And he'll score yeah. five and five. He'll go six without scoring. Villa will finish in the top seven if they deserve to and Watkins will play a big part in that. If Watkins scored every chance he gets, he'll be playing for Real Madrid. But if he scores 10 to 15, then sound. Because which uh, which striker to Villa buy that's going to score more than that? Because there isn't one. Because oh, yeah. if they're yeah, 70 million quid, they don't come to Villa. This is where exactly. we are. And Ollie Watkins is a very good player for us. Until he scores a goal, this is the conversation. And if he doesn't score against Chelsea, I'm not talking about him next week because we're going to say the same things. <laughs> so we need him to score. And if it drags on that he doesn't score for 18 Premier League games in a row, then there's a, a wide talking point there to discuss because that's not Ollie Watkins. He does score at some point and we move on. We move on in the podcast to John Duran. Funny, isn't he, John Duran? I really like him. There's just As we've said in previous weeks, there's something about him comes on and causes a problem. And, and that's a great kind of impact sub to have that he might not necessarily score, though obviously he did this week. He'll do something and contribute. Again, a couple of comments. Is John Duran the perfect impact sub in growing in confidence? Pure Benteki vibes. Yeah, I, I just love him. Like I loved him ever since he um, joined. I, I probably sounded like an idiot last season when I kept saying, oh, but he always makes an impact when he comes off the bench, even though he didn't really do too much. But he just he just causes issues and problems. Yeah. But what we said about him previously was always in the back of my mind, well, you know, and this is a belief I had that Keenan Davis did something similar when he came off. He'd, he'd make a difference and he'd kind of put himself about and kind of ruffle a few feathers. Duran's adding goals to his game. I say adding goals to his game. We haven't seen him enough to suggest that he didn't have that otherwise, but he's scoring goals and the technique he has as well is, uh, <laughs> wow, like obviously the Man City game. He crashes the bar and that would have been goal of the season easily. And then he does something similar against Palace, just... Yeah, like what a moment to score your first goal in front of the whole end like that. And in the circumstance as well, I just, when it went in, you know, obviously elated by it. But at the same time, you just thought, oh, but if that's only to draw the game, like you really want to make <laughs> yeah. use of it for it to be a part of 
you know that comeback uh, in that mm. in that fashion and everything that comes with it it makes it an even better goal in a way and he inspired the comeback he you know there was a moment before that goal where he where he chased back one possession i don't know if you remember that it was like on the halfway line and, and it got, got the crowd up and i don't know what minute that was in but he was running everywhere he just gets involved and even in the liverpool game he, he had a few wild shots don't get me wrong that he probably shouldn't have even <laughs> tried but he was getting in positions and we got more um out of him coming off the bench than what we did previously and Hmm. He just he gets involved. He's energetic. He's there. He's you know I like him a lot, and hopefully he can continue to have a, a really bright season. And you know can he make a difference in the Conference League as well? You know let's see what happens there. But yeah, Emery said that he wants patience over John Duran, and that he was asked about is he close to starting like instead of Watkins or with Watkins, and he said that. Um, yeah, he wants patience in terms of the start, but in terms of playing with Watkins, he mentioned that it's not the first time he's done it and it basically won't be the last either. But at the same time, if they're both playing on the same pitch, then you probably think that Villa are in need of a goal. So I don't know how many times that will be happening um, True, over the course yeah. of the season. You almost don't want it to be that case. I saw some comments on, again, on social media that have not got in front of me, but it was about like the Benteke uh, comparison because we, we did the same thing on the post-match show that not him as a player in his all-round game. So I think Benteke's hold-up play and what he what he how he brought others into the game was something that we've not yet seen from Duran really. But that goal specifically against Palace was if that was Christian Benteke in a, a Macron shirt from ten years ago, you go, yeah, that's a Benteke goal. Like the way he brings it down, the one touch lets it bounce, the volley, the half volley, like the freeze frame of when he actually hits the ball. I don't think I think the image I've seen is a freeze frame from the the video rather than it being like a proper photograph. I don't know. He even generates that much power. No, like, I don't know. He's, like, he's like it's sad, a, it's sort of real right, like, really like yeah, like the way he's brought his leg up. Like, it's obviously very difficult for me to reenact it anyway. But never mind. <laughs> sat at a desk. <laughs> but yeah, it's just uh, if you find that freeze frame anyway, I won't be able to put it on screen because of copyright reasons. But you wouldn't have expected the ball to have gone the way it did and how fast it did and where it did. You just think he's probably kind of scuffed that because it, it looks so unnatural. But yeah, such such brilliant technique and. The comparisons I saw with Ben Teke on social media very quickly were that, you know, it's a little bit kind of getting carried away to to start calling him that just yet, which I also agree with. The argument was that Ben Teke scored was it nineteen goals in his in his debut season for us. John Duran's not going to do that first <laughs> because John Duran's not starting every week uh, as the main man, and also Ben Teke was older at that at that time when Duran is now. I think Ben Teke was twenty one or twenty two oh, yeah. off the top of my head, and Duran's what just just gone nineteen. So long way to go yet in terms of his development, but he looks like we said before raw potential and the technique is clearly there. It's just having a bit of uh, refinement over the the seasons ahead will hopefully turn him into a, a a good goal scorer because he's clearly got that kind of lethal uh, instinct. Yeah, I, I think it's exciting as well that he hasn't actually played for, uh, no disrespect to the MLS, but he hasn't actually played in a competitive league, really. And mm, I know the yeah, MLS yeah. is kind of competitive, but there's also like no relegation. Yeah, I, don't how, league, so. yeah. I don't know how serious it is, but this is the first time he's actually played in you know a proper proper division. Like the Belgian league with Benteke is, is proper. You've got Champions League teams in that, in, in that division and players are playing for something. Um, the MLS seems to be more of like a development league in some ways for a lot of players or a retirement um, division for others. So... And then obviously before they played in Colombia and yeah, for him to make the impact that he has. And I think to be trusted by Emery, that says an awful lot as well. Emery mm-hmm. would have um, put him out on loan this yeah. summer if he yeah, wanted to. He, he chose him over Cameron Archer as well, which I think says an awful lot because that's, yeah, that's what I was Cameron say. Archer scores goals in the championship, which is obviously we know is a good level for strikers playing. And, you know, Cameron Archer is a good player. He's scored goals for Sheffield United this season. Yes, they're a poor team, but you will do. And um, yeah, for Durant to make the impact he has, I think it's uh, really exciting. Hopefully, over the next coming years, he can continue and you know save us a lot of money as well. Yes, it, I think it's about eighteen million quid overall in terms of all of the um, add-ons that we'll get to uh, in the future. But you know, if he if he gets to a certain level in the next couple of years, that's going to look like a snip, isn't it? Just on Durant very quickly. Another comment, if Durant scores against Legia Warsaw on Thursday, and I wanted to do a bit of a Poland preview in this, but we're running out of time because we've, we've covered so much else, should he take Watkins' place against Chelsea? No. Does he start at Chelsea with Watkins? No. Okay. No, you so can't just... How, try, how do you, how do you, you reward can't. that then? If he scores against Poland, how do you record reward scoring against Palace, scoring against Poland? Surely he's, he starts again, against now? As Emery said, you need to be patient. He's got a plan for him. It's a nineteen-year-old. Like you can't get 
he's 19, he's not even 20 yet. It's crazy. Just because he's had a good impact doesn't mean that he has to all of a sudden be rewarded with, oh, you know, play at Stamford Bridge. And then after 60 minutes and he doesn't score, people say, oh, why did we do that for? And is he good enough? You know, it, it, you have to protect these players and you, you have to keep them grounded. If he starts at Chelsea, you know, you can argue maybe... <laughs> don't. Yeah, that, that, that'll be it. And yeah, I mean, great if it does. But no, you, Villa's best chance to beat Chelsea is to play Ollie Watkins and... Ollie Watkins might not score, but God, I'm sick of saying it. He gives you so much more, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, final comment about uh, football matters, at least. Uh, speaking of Chelsea, there, let's look ahead a little bit. One of the questions we had was how many points will we get from the next 10 games, which is far too many to comprehend at the moment, since we've only got five. So let's change that a little bit because 10 is too many. So let's do three the amount of Premier League games until the next international break. So that's Chelsea away, Brighton at home, and Wolves away. How many points do you think we'll get from that? What I'd say straight away is you don't want to lose any of those games. I think we can go to Chelsea and win, to be honest. Mm. I think if you take the whole, it's Chelsea, it's Stamford Bridge out of it, they're a pretty bang average team at the moment. Yeah, they have some exceptional players, but they're just not playing as a team at all. And there's no signs. Bournemouth were probably really frustrated that they didn't win um, at the weekend. And us going there, I'm confident we can definitely get something. And would you take a point? Maybe. But then if you take a point, then you'd like to beat Brighton. I think between those two games, you want four points in either, in mm. any which way it comes because Brighton are, are um, an exceptional team. So four points out of those two, I think would be a good return. And you've you, you've got to beat Wolves, haven't you? I know mm. we don't do well at Molyneux and I don't think we've won there for, well, since El Ghazi scored that penalty. But apart from, you know, we in the last two years when Wolves haven't been good, we haven't won there and we've performed really poorly. So you need to win at Wolves and to get four points out of Chelsea and Brighton, I'd take that. So how many points is that? Seven points? Seven. Mm-hmm. I had this conversation on Twitter before the Palace game and it was those three games, obviously, plus Palace. And I wanted at least seven, ideally nine from the four. So you've got us as having 10 from the 12. Because obviously we beat Palace with the benefit of hindsight that I didn't have last week. I'd be slightly possibly concerned, I suppose, just on paper that we're playing in Poland on Thursday and then Chelsea and how does that affect us? And that will be dependent on how the game goes against Legia Warsaw if we batter them 4-0 and be able to take players off and stuff. I don't think it does affect us for Chelsea. Obviously, next week, we've got another midweek game with Everton in the Cup, which again, will be as rotated as you would expect. And I still think we'll be able to get through Everton at home again. Brighton at Villa Park is interesting because they're very good, but we're also very good at Villa Park, so that's a very, very interesting matchup. Yeah, that's going to be difficult. And then Wolves away is Wolves away. Find it hard to read Wolves because in the games I've seen them play, I actually think they've looked half decent, but overall I don't think they're a great side and no. they can't really score goals. But it's Wolves away and they get up for it. It's at Molyneux. It's yeah. difficult. So I think six points from those three come in would be a, a good return. And you, just you don't want to lose any of them, do you? Oh, you don't like, want them, but you, it's going to happen six, at some point. Yeah, like six points over that three would put us about where we are now, I presume, in the table, which is fine. But after each one, yeah. if we lost to Chelsea, we'd come and think, oh, that's crap. Or if we lose to Brighton, it's like, oh, we've lost to a... If you, do you know what I mean? I think if that's we lose any game... Yeah, if we lose any game... Um, sorry, if we... Yeah, if we lose any game that isn't a Newcastle, Liverpool away, or a top team at home, maybe, you'd be kind of annoyed because they're games we have to probably win or, you know, not have to win, but we shouldn't be losing, really, I don't think, to Brighton at home if we have aspirations to be where we are. Um, but, certainly but it can happen, and I, I think the important happen, thing yeah. is the, the context of it, that it's those yes. five games, because you don't want to lose any of the Premier League, obviously. It goes without saying you don't want to lose games. I also expect us to beat Legia, Warsaw and Everton. Can I see us winning five games in the about two weeks probably not so on that Brighton game they play Chelsea in the cup which um, you know, obviously is no easy game but as they made X amount of changes against Man United and the squad cost like 16 million or the first 11 yeah. sorry no wipe the floor so they're, they're they're magic Brighton honestly so yeah tough game We've kind of run out of time a little bit to talk about Poland in any more detail, but I know that you're travelling over there on Tuesday, I think it is, so we, we might catch up yeah. again before the game on Thursday, or you, maybe you'll do one of your uh, bulletin shows on audio only as a bit of a catch-up of, of where you are yeah. on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, possibly. A couple of questions we had were about off-field issues uh, and whether we could mention those. Now, I'm including this in this show to get a little bit more feedback from the people watching and listening to get involved with the comments section to help us fuel a future episode. I've reached out to a couple of people that aren't you or Matt um, to speak about these issues who maybe have, I don't want to say better understanding, but you're in the press box now. Matt doesn't go to away games. So I want a bit more insight than than uh, just what we know. 
So there will be a show upcoming at some point in the next couple of weeks, hopefully about off-field issues rather than any, any football matters because it is an important thing. And I, I don't want to do it an injustice to kind of gloss over topics here and not give them proper answers. So the only reason I'm really going to mention these two comments here is to get more comments in the future to help us plan an, a show upcoming. Are you able to chat about off-field issues that are that supporters are facing? A lack of engagement from the club and the shafting of season ticket holders are topics that should be covered. Agreed, and they will be covered. Performances on the pitch are magic, but that isn't matched by Chris Heck and the commercial team. And uh, as an add-on to that, is the club under Chris Heck losing sight of the fact that we are fans first? With the news of the Holt suite now being taken away from season ticket holders, it's starting to feel like we're customers to squeeze every last penny out of us. Again, without the kind of knowledge to have looked at this too much before we're recording this show, I can't really comment too much on the Holt suite. It isn't a, this word is going to make it sound like customers. It's not a service that I've used, the Holt suite. It's not something that I'll go, go and use as a season ticket holder. But I, am, I have been made aware on social media about how now want to charge it something like seventy pound per game to go into the Holt Suite when it used to be a free add-on for season ticket holders, which, on the face of it, sounds terrible uh, and, and unacceptable. But again, I've not been able to do the the due diligence and the research to comment on that properly. What I will say about like blaming Chris Heck is it's a little bit difficult because he's you know, head of commercial operations or whatever the the job title is. So Business. everything everything on that side of the business, yeah, falls to his desk you know, falls on his lap so at some point he is he's culpable for those decisions whether it is actually him personally i'm not too sure and there is a, it feels a little bit like a witch hunt on social media to go that anything that isn't football related the season ticket prices going up the round badge debate the giant is awake branding the club shop the Holt suite whatever it is oh boo that's chris heck that's chris heck's decision that's his thing it could well be but it might also be that there's a wider team involved in those decisions. But ultimately, I suppose he is at the top of that. So, yeah, I suppose he's the the figure that gets the blame when things go wrong and will get the praise if things are done right. As I said, I've not had enough information to be able to make a, a proper opinion on this. And like I said, I don't want to do it in injustice and kind of sweep club uh, and fan supporters under the under the carpet because we've got a platform here that we can definitely share those stories. But I need people to get involved and tell me your experiences things like the Terrace View is great. And, and that's one thing outside of the club, if you want to do it and can afford to do it and it's your choice, that's fine. But the concourses for regular match-going fans shouldn't be uh, neglected for the sake of an increased price somewhere else. The, the standards, the prices and whatnot for the North Stand in particular, I've heard is very bad. And not queuing up to order a drink and then having to queue up again to collect it seems absolutely mad. So, I need more feedback from those that are experiencing these issues to be able to produce a proper podcast about it, is, is what I'm trying to say. I don't want to kind of look as if we're going, oh, we don't care, let's just talk about the football. And I'd rather put those in a dedicated podcast rather than just go, oh, well, I'm not quite sure, that sounds bad. Anyway, let's talk about John Duran. Is that fair, John? Yeah, yeah, we, we need to do a proper podcast on it and it's worth getting kind of, I've done all sides of the story, reaching out to different sections of the fan base because obviously things aren't the same in the whole as what they are into the trinity and other things like that yeah. but what i would say is i mean i've been a season ticket holder for years up and I, I don't go as a season ticket holder now obviously if there was no communication whether the whole suite would be open as you know obviously it's free to walk in but you obviously got to pay for your drinks and stuff when you get into the like the function room or whatever if fans weren't told that then i i don't know why i think that's quite simple to to mention that this won't be available in your season ticket which is now more expensive um mm. for this season and again we'll have, we'll do a proper podcast on on all of those things because it's i think it's crucial to do so speaking to people in the club it's something that needs to happen as well because we what what's happening in terms of improvements to the general concourse and things like that we know that the whole um, it's got the terrace view now, but obviously that's something that not everyone can afford, quite simply. Last season, I queued up for a bottle of water before the end of the first half when the when the ref put up his, so the full official put up his additional time. Got a bottle of water in a long queue and I came back as the second half kicked off. I shouldn't be waiting for about 20 minutes for a bottle of water. It's um, yeah. That has to be upgraded. And this is without kind of speaking to people who are making the decisions, but I think to put the terrace view in, to put the terrace view in first before upgrading something is quite as simple as that in terms of queues for for drinks in all the other concourses i'm not i'd like to know the, the kind of decision of why that was sorry the reason of why that decision was made because that's um 
I think we know the reason. If we're if we're not going to be cynical about it, the reason is that that makes more money. So that's a simple thing, isn't it? That that's a priority. That if if all the concourses are improved next season, but the season ticket prices go up again, a hundred quid, as an example. I'm not. I'm say, not. Well, the concourses are better now. That's a standard. That should be a right to everybody to be able to get a drink within twenty yeah. minutes. Season ticket prices will go up, and I don't blame the club for it because. You know, it's football clubs are businesses, and yeah, we're fans, but no, we're customers. We are. That's the yeah. reality of it, and it's being in line with everything else. Other Premier League clubs are expensive uh, in terms of seeing tickets and whatnot. However, you need to have some sort of justification of why the facilities are still the same as what they are. Not all the facilities, granted, but most of them, the kind of basic, you know, what you expect when you go to a game. I don't think my match day experience has changed from when Villa were you know in the championship playing at home against Burton Albion to what it is now and my season yeah. ticket although I don't have one this season last season I did it's obviously gone up a lot and it would have gone up again and I'm still using facilities around Villa Park on a match day every now and again and then they haven't been upgraded at least the ones that I'm using I don't know if that's the case for everywhere else but yeah it's worth doing a proper podcast on on what exactly is going on because obviously there's big plans for the stadium to be increased and there's a lot going on however I think some things are being neglected that are probably quite um, I don't say easily fixed, but they should have been the first priority rather than other things. Like I said, I don't want to hijack this podcast and we'll, we will do something separate. I don't know when it will be yet because it probably needs a bit more time and thought. And again, I'll need comments to get involved and, and share your experiences to, to be able to inform that. If we can put any of those complaints, for want of a better word, to somebody at the club and, and hear their side of things, we will try and do that. But I, I don't hold out any hope that anyone will front up and, and share their side of it from the club side. Um, sadly so yeah get involved in the comments let us know what you think John thanks for joining me it's been a really good podcast I thought loads and loads covered hopefully a little bit more positive than uh, Saturday evening's one as well thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you again very soon